It's the late 1980s. Scotland has been flooded with cannabis. Customs are speaking with their colleagues at police. And the same names are cropping up time and again. Informants are coming and saying, it's Chisholm, it's Ian Ray, it's Davy Forrest, it's their associates. In the previous episode, we learned how this gang, led by Julian Chisholm, a retired Aberdeen diver, set up a drugs importation route in the northwest of Scotland. But now their operation had caught the attention of law enforcement across the country. It was decided that this new gang had to be stopped. So the Scottish crime squad based in Stonehaven met up with a customs officer named Graham Dick from the drugs unit at the HM Customs and Excise Office. Together, they created Operation Klondike, the mission to catch Julian Chisholm. Their operation is given significant resources to build a case against Julian Chisholm and his gang. This part of the story is best told in two parts, through the eyes of the police and through the eyes of the criminals. This episode will focus on the former of the two, where we take you inside Operation Klondike and the extensive surveillance of Mr. X. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan, and from The Courier and The Press and Journal, this is Hunting Mr. X, the true story behind the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history, and the man who masterminded it all, Julian Chisholm. Episode 2, Operation Klondike. My name is Graham Dick, I was the case officer for Operation Klondike. We were able to speak to Graham Dick. He's now retired after a long and accomplished career in law enforcement, but he was willing to speak to us and share his experience hunting Mr. X. As we interview him, his answers are frank but detailed. Graham Dick joined HM Customs and Excise in 1977 and spent over 10 years working in financial crime. In 1989, Graham took up a job working in the drugs unit and in his very first summer there, he gets a tip-off about Julian Chisholm. The police at Stonehaven, who got the information first, they'd already worked on Chisholm and his profile. Um, but in general terms, he was um, quite a successful North Sea oil diver. Somewhere along the line, he'd moved into drug trafficking. In Operation Klondike, Graham was tasked with keeping a watchful eye on the movements of Julian Chisholm. It was a massive surveillance operation requiring heavy amounts of resources and energy including undercover officers, surveillance equipment and cars to follow Chisholm across Scotland in places like Perth, Dundee, Aberdeen and in the northwest towards Ullapool where the gang had previously operated. We had teams that would do heroin cases, um, cocaine cases or cannabis cases and we tended to concentrate on the, the big fish, uh, the major criminals. But Chisholm rarely did any of the heavy lifting himself. In 89, Chisholm was living a glamorous life in Spain, in the resort town of Estepona. So it was even more curious to Graham Dick when Chisholm began flying to Scotland more often. It intensified because he started coming to the UK more. It wasn't a case of um, anything new he was doing. It was simply that his visits were more frequent. And he would come into either, I think it was Gatwick or Edinburgh, hire a car, drive up to Scotland stop off and see his mum, maybe, or go and see Ian Ray, Davy Forrest in the Dundee area. Because Chisholm lived in Spain, Graham needed the help from the Spanish authorities for the operation. 
Investigative reporter Dale Haslam found out just how important the Spanish police would be to the success of Operation Klondike. Spanish police were quite happy to facilitate um, officers to do surveillance work. Chisholm or his um, lieutenants would fly into Spain. There'd be someone there at the airport waiting. There'd be someone there noting down how he got from A to B, whether it be in a taxi or a hire car. There'd be someone keeping tabs on his apartment, his uh, hotels, also um, his boat. You know, at times they would have someone there for long periods of time on the harbour, hours on end, days on end, waiting for the East Tray to move. When Chesham would travel through Malaga Airport, he was being watched. At points, surveillance officers were even close enough to listen to Chesham as he made phone calls from the payphone at the airport. It was a costly operation too, but it was all important. You see, Graham believed Chesham was planning something big. Graham Dick needed to find out what Julian Chesham's plan was. Then he could catch him in the act. Whenever Chesham would enter Scotland, Graham would be on his tail. Graham had the names of Chesham's allies, Ian Ray and David Forrest. Graham also had officers watching the East Street, Chesham's own personal yacht, which he knew Chisholm used for drug runs. But Chisholm's yacht wouldn't be the focus for very long. Chisholm set his sights on buying a new boat for his drug runs, a boat called the Shearwake. The Shearwake was on sale in Middlesbrough and Chisholm was hoping that it would give him some kind of advantage over anyone investigating him. But thanks to some intelligence Graham Dick received, he actually found out about Chisholm buying a boat before he made the purchase. So he acted to be one step ahead. Graham watched as Chisholm spent weeks trying to negotiate with the boat's owner. Like we mentioned in the previous episode, Chisholm was great at negotiating and getting his own way. But this time, it wasn't working. Instead, the boat's owner found Chisholm cocky and suspicious. But here's the thing, instead of stepping in to stop the purchase, Graham and his team did quite the opposite. They instead made efforts to encourage the owner to sell to Chisholm. But why? Out at sea, knowing exactly which boat Chisholm would be using would be gold for the officer's surveillance, and it would snuff out any efforts Chisholm had to throw off customs by switching boats. In fact, when Graham Dick saw the sail going sideways, he actually went down to meet the boat's owner. We had a chat, he told me what was happening, and kept me informed with the contacts between him and, and Julian. And he was on the point of pulling out, and we sort of tried to persuade him to stick with it. Because we knew if Chisholm didn't go ahead with the Shearwick, we might not get another opportunity to know which boat he was going to buy. And as it happened, it did go ahead. They tracked the Shearwick to Spain, close to where Chisholm lived, on the Costa del Sol. They also spotted, in November 1989, a man named Chris Howarth meet Chisholm in Spain. Who was this new member of Chisholm's gang? Graham would find the answers to that question in a fishing village in the northwest of Scotland called Alapu. In 1989, Chisholm was creating his very own distribution network, and it would be here in Alapu where he decided to import his drugs. Alapu is not your usual location for a story about international drug gangs. Located in the northwest of Scotland, it started as a fishing settlement in 1788 slowly becoming a full-blown village and port. Now, if you're walking along its harbour, as well as a stunning coastline, 
you'll see a pleasant fishing village. It's a dream destination for tourists, where you'd be hard to find a vacant hotel room during its summer months. Bars, restaurants, street food, and local attractions. I find it hard to imagine police descending on Talapil like they did back in 89, to uncover the criminal conspiracy that was lying underneath. But back then, Alapil was a different kind of place. It was described as the kind of place where workers and fishermen would unwind, usually by partying or drinking. If Graham wanted to spy on Chisholm's activities within Alapil, he was going to have to place undercover officers among its patrons. But this wasn't going to be easy. It was impossible to follow people in Alapul. Everyone knows everyone else. This is actually how Customs came up with the name Operation Klondike. The Klondikers were Russian fishermen who would come to Alapul for respite. They would stand out when they would loudly speak Russian in public. They gave it this name almost as a, a reminder to themselves of, look, if we go there, we're going to stick out. Among the patrons of Alapul, Graham had his sights set on one man named Chris Howarth, a new member of Chisholm's gang. But why did Chisholm need a new gang member? Howarth was a tall fisherman with a shock of blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. Like Chisholm, Howarth was a professional diver. He actually qualified as a diver at only 15 years old. But Howarth hadn't been as lucky as Chisholm and hadn't made a huge fortune in diving. Howarth is in his early 30s when he meets Chisholm in Ullapool. Initially, he... Uh worked on fishing boats in the season, and he would uh, also go off to, I think, the Isle of Moor to become a, a scallop diver as well. But he also had a very violent nature, and it earned him the nickname Crazy Chris. There are accounts of, uh, of Chris going out in a week, earning, you know, earning his weekly salary, and then spending it all in uh, one of the local pubs on a Friday night, you know, and knocking back the scotch and then somebody says something about his other half and that's all it takes to uh, to start a fight and before he knows it he's in the back of a police van and spending the weekend in the cells chris was not a, a mastermind criminal he was very low level offender and he was a uh, other than these uh, bouts of uh, of of sudden violence uh, mostly under the influence of of of, of whiskey he was a a nice guy, uh, according to those who, who knew him at the time, and a very good dad as well. He wasn't just Crazy Chris. Howarth was a skilled diver and knew the Ullapool coastlines well. This is why, in the late 1980s, Chisholm approached Howarth to be on his crew. In fact, Howarth was going to be a crucial part of Chisholm's operation. Chisholm wanted Howarth to help import the drugs into Ullapool. He would be someone that would sail the drug shipments in to... Uh, to port in Scotland, he would be uh, useful to Chisholm for his great diving skills. So he could um, he could take um, the drugs on a very, very small vessel in choppy waters and know the right place to land, um, intimate knowledge of the coastline. Chisholm gives Howarth his number, telling Howarth that he'll pay him handsomely for his expertise. Howarth goes away and thinks about it. He'd basically burned his bridges in Ullapool. He'd had a criminal record for minor offences. It made it harder for him to get a job. And at this point, Chris was just sick of of of, of uh, working long hours for for no reward or, or, or job hunting. All these experiences of 
being down on his luck and he just he just thought I've got this phone number I've been introduced to this guy who obviously you know has done well for himself I'll give it a call see what happens Now with the addition of Chris Howarth Chisholm's gang was complete First there was Ian Ray and David Forrest Ray was Chisholm's right hand man who he trusted beyond belief Forrest was Ray's pal These two were known as the transportation team. It's helpful to picture these two driving down the country, transporting Chisholm's drugs, because that's exactly what their main job was. These two men were crucial to Chisholm's operation once the drugs were on land. But before them, it would be Chris Howarth who would import the drugs. Chris, in turn, recruited a man called Noel Hawkins for the same reason. He also had uh, knowledge of the coastline and good diving skills. Noel Hawkins was quite young at the time, um, wanted to earn money, was eager to, to, to get on without asking questions, and that worked well. And then you had uh, Robbie Burns, who was effectively uh, a fixer for Chisholm. He worked primarily alongside Ian Ray and David Forrest. But he would, for example, if uh, Chisholm called from Spain, he would call... Burns and say, I need you to relay a message to Hawkins or to Howarth or to someone else. I need you to go up there to see them or I need you, need you to drive this car for me to be. He would do that. All of this just reinforced Graham's suspicions that Chisholm was planning something big. It explained his traveling and his recruiting of new members. It would also explain why at this point Chisholm was seen as being a bit paranoid. Here's Dale Haslam to explain. He would you know, walk for, for, for many miles to, to use a phone box that he'd never used before. And he would call a friend of a friend and ask for messages to be passed on. But he, but he was conscious that the, the industry he was in would, um, you know, uh, would uh, gain attention. He was attempting anti-surveillance measures to evade anyone following him. For example, Chisholm would hire a car and travel up north. And of course, customs wouldn't be far behind him. Graham Dick had informers at the car hire firms so they would know exactly which car Chisholm was driving. But on his journeys, Chisholm would approach a roundabout and decide to go round and round and round about four times. This way Chisholm could check if anyone was following him. This was smart, right? But actually customs had already prepared for something like this. They would have a second car ready to take over if the first car ever got flushed out. Customs would also switch cars every 50 miles. It's fair to say that there was nothing that was done which gave the game away. However, that doesn't mean that, that Chisholm uh, wasn't paranoid. Operation Klondike then bled over to 1990 and Customs continued to avoid detection. That was until February 1990 when a tense encounter would take place where Chisholm's paranoia may just have been realized. For the first time in Operation Klondike, Graham Dick and Julian Chisholm would come face to face. It's a snowy evening on the 28th of February, 1990. Graham Dick and his customs colleague, Joe McGuigan, have trailed Chisholm to the Glen Isla Hotel, located just north of Dundee. Chisholm had stayed in this hotel several times because of how close it was to his right-hand man, Ian Ray. We, we knew that he was coming up. We'd followed him in the area. 
we knew that when he went to see Ian Ray, he would either stay at Ian's place or he would stay in the Glen Isla. And the Glen Isla was his preferred location. My colleague Joe and I decided to go into Glen Isla because there was the possibility that he was meeting Ian Ray inside um, the hotel, and that would have been great evidence. Graham hoped that he could blend in among the other patrons. So we went in there and sat down and had a, a pint and um, a meal. Julian was at the bar, speaking to the barman. The only problem was the bar wasn't as busy as the two officers had hoped. In fact, it was almost completely dead. The two undercover officers stuck out and drew the eyes of their suspect. A glass panel behind the bar acted as a mirror for the officers to watch Julian Chisholm. But when they would look up, all they could see in the glass was Chisholm staring right back at them. And we could see that he was looking at us at the table. I went to use the phone, I think, and uh, he followed me into the little corridor where the phone was, hung around for a few seconds to hear what was being talked about, and then went inside. And then a while later, uh, I went to the toilet. And the barman turned up next to me and started talking. Why are you here? Where are you going? Where are you from? Joe and I had a good cover story. We were going, we were going hill walking up Glen Shee. We were, we'd come up from uh, Glasgow, da, 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 da. We'd mentioned the hotel we were going to stay in. And he accept, he seemed to be happy with that and went back. And then a short time later, we left. Um, there was a lot of snow about. We got to the car in the car park and Julian Chisholm followed us into the car park to see which way we went. We obviously couldn't go back to Dundee, um, so we, we went further up the Glen. This was a risky move. Chisholm was already paranoid, and now his paranoia may have just been proven right. Chisholm flew back to Spain. If he was suspicious that he was being followed, he didn't show it. Chisholm was paranoid. Uh, all of these people are. Um, we, we maybe didn't fit the profile of the bar. Maybe we shouldn't have gone in there in the first place. You know, it's a judgment call at the time. But it didn't stop him from doing anything. It might have worried him, but not for long. Graham Dick continued to investigate Chisholm and the gang for the rest of the year until Julian Chisholm finally sprung into action. It's November 1990, bonfire night. Chris Howarth and Noel Hawkins are attending a bonfire party outside of Inverness. The two are under constant surveillance, but tonight would be the night all of that would change. So throughout that night, you know, we're talking November, music, fireworks, bonfire, and lots of booze, lots of whiskey, lots of vodka, drugs, magic mushrooms, LSD. As the party winds down, a car pulls up. Two men jump out with their sights set on Howarth and Hawkins. Howarth and Hawkins are dragged into the car, which takes off. One minute they're, they're in the living room of someone's house, drinking, enjoying the music, a bit dizzy, a bit disorientated. The next minute they're in the back of a car and they don't, don't have a clue what's going on. They don't know if they're being arrested. They don't know if it's a rival gang. Throughout this episode, you would have heard about a big score Julian Chisholm was planning. 
And if you've been frustrated about the lack of details or revelations around this big score, then you know exactly how Graham Dick felt back in 1990. Because soon after the bonfire night, Chris Howarth and Noel Hawkins would slip under the radar of Graham Dick and his team. Graham Dick had no idea where they had gone. It wouldn't be until a month later when a police sergeant walked into a pub in Ullapil and seized No Hawkins. Then shortly after, Graham's team spots Howarth. Both men have been missing since the bonfire night and now suddenly have turned up in Ullapil, but something is different about them. In the peak of a Scottish winter, both men have suntans. To find out what had happened to Howarth and Hawkins, it's now time to switch to the other side of the story, to the side of the criminals. By doing so, we'll learn about the events that followed the bonfire night, what Chisholm had been planning all this time. It also reveals that by the time Graham discovered Howarth and Hawkins had returned, they had already pulled off their big score. Next time on Hunting Mr. X. And they left the airport and they, we immediately lost them. The Spanish police lost them. And we didn't have a clue where they were. And they pushed these bales of cocaine out of the side of the plane into the water where they fished them out with long hooks. He said to Chris, you know, when we're not moving drugs, we move people, but they don't ever get there. And then he did a motion with his gun pointing overboard into the sea. Hunting Mr. X is a DC Thompson production from the titles of The Courier and Preston Journal. You can listen to the whole series on all your major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a review? And for more Mr. X content, you can log on to The Courier or The Preston Journal. Hunting Mr. X is presented and co-produced by me, Brendan Duggan. Original reporting by Dale Haslam and co-produced by Morvan McIntyre.